All right. We're taking all the best old school wisdom and blending it with the top new school methods to bring you the optimal coaching strategies. This, this, this is the 8020 Baseball Podcast with Coach Bo. Welcome, coaches, specifically youth baseball coaches. Welcome here, Coach Bo with you. Today, we're going to hit on a couple items. First, we're going to hit on post-game pitching recovery. We're going to touch on a few tips, strategies that I have to share with you. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the hitting approach and some things that I've seen out there that we can learn from by looking at, by watching. I've been seeing some things, Major League Baseball, some players, some things that are going on with the hitting approach that are, in my opinion, not going to help yield the best results are not going to produce the best results at the plate. And why would I bring up the professional game when we're talking youth baseball? The biggest reason on that is when I use examples, those are examples that are easy to see, players that you can see or you can find these videos quickly. So baseball is baseball at the end of the day. Is youth baseball different than Major League Baseball, than professional baseball, than collegiate baseball? Yes, in a lot of ways it is different, but in a lot of ways it's exactly the same. I try to be very upfront and transparent about what I feel is much different and what I feel is almost identical at the various levels. All right, let's get into pitcher recovery. Pitcher recovery. So you have a pitcher that throws in a game, even a bullpen. I think this is a good idea. Anytime they get on the mound and throw an extended period, more than just a few pitches, which is almost always the case. Definitely the more pitches they throw, the more time should be spent on this. Post-game recovery, a big part of it. A big part of it is stretching, is stretching out the lats, the latissimus dorsi, those kind of those muscles in the back. If you see uh, somebody at the gym with really big like side back muscle, like wings, almost those lats, and you can really stretch those out simply by just hanging on the fence, having the pitcher hold the fence and then lean back from the fence and stretch it out. Another really great way to do it is with a pull-up bar, some kind of overhead bar that they can just hang and stretch from. And sometimes they don't even need to hang from it. Their feet can be on the ground, but they put more of their weight on their, they distribute more weight onto their upper body. So there's more of a stretch. The entire shoulder area is something that should be stretched post pitching, post game, post bullpen. Stretching is really, really important. And I highly recommend it be done right after the game, or even as soon as the pitcher comes out of the game, if that can be facilitated, that isn't always that easy because a lot of times that pitcher is going to stay in the game or do some other role or have another capacity out there on the field. So it's not always the easiest, but if you can have them do it right after they pitch or right at the end of the game, this is how I run it. All the pitchers that pitch in the game, they stay after with me and we do a fence stretch. Typically right after the game, typically when the rest of the team is picking up the dugout, I'll have them come over and do that. Now, I don't always do it that way because I do like those pitchers to clean up the dugout and help organize things and definitely throw away all the trash and leave the dugout just like we found it. But I think that's an opportune time. You can also have them stay after a little bit and do it after your post-game discussion, which shouldn't be that long anyways. And this whole stretching routine should not take more than about five to eight minutes. Simply just want to stretch out those muscles after they've been used. Now, I talked about stretching the latissimus dorsi muscles, but you can stretch the deltoid muscles. Any type of stretch that can be done using the fence, holding the fence, and work very well. I don't think pitchers need to do a lot of running after the game. That was old 
old school, kind of old school, conventional way of doing it where we would run polls and polls, basically foul pole to foul pole, as many of you know, run six polls, 12 polls, 20 polls, go run two miles. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I don't know if there's much of a benefit and there's a lot of discussion going back and forth with that. I don't think conditioning pitchers to pitch should involve much long distance. I'm more into sprints, more into quick movements, definitely getting them tired, definitely getting that heart rate up for an extended period of time. But sprints, I'm big on sprints. I'm big on side shuffles. I'm big on reverse sprints. I'm big on that stuff, big on single leg works, single leg squats, lunges. And I think that can get pitchers extremely tired and can build up that cardio. I'm not a big fan of the long distance running to build up pitcher endurance, but I do think a little bit after the game might not be a bad idea to get that blood pumping. And especially if the pitcher sat around, didn't really do much after they pitched, or you know, they're probably going to go home and play video games. It may not be a bad idea to have them do a little 10 minute jog. That's about the only time I really recommend doing jogging or something like a little bit longer distance for baseball. I'm big on sprints. As I just said, I'm really big on quick movement, sprinting. I'm really big on getting them tired and getting that heart rate up, but it's more of a high intensity interval training type of approach or quick sprints and then a jog, quick sprints, then a jog or essentially a jog back to where they started. A lot of side movements, 360, 360 degree symmetrical movements. But post game is not a bad idea to have them do a little bit of a jog, but more than anything, having them stretch out that shoulder area, those lats, those things start to get a little bit tighter. This isn't such a big deal for the seven U's, the eight U's, the nine U's, the 10 U's. When you start getting into that 12 U, 13 U area, definitely in the high school and above, the muscle development, the muscle growth, that can be a time or that is a time where pitchers, players just in general need to start incorporating more flexibility, mobility types of exercises. What happens with the pitching shoulder is after you're throwing, it's not necessarily going to be injured after pitchers pitch, of course not, but it does have a tendency as pitchers are a little bit older to stiffen up, it gets a little tight, and I think it's a good plan to implement a standardized flexibility training, typically just using the fence to use as that. You don't need another player to to hold the other player's arms and things like that. I've been able to do this with pitchers for years, just using the fence. Essentially have them move their body around and use their body weight as they're leaning or pulling off the fence, holding the fence to stretch. But you can do it different ways. And I think you really want to focus on the shoulders and the lats, things like that, the biceps, the triceps. I think it's a good idea to have pitchers stretch. Again, 7U, 8U, 6Us, 10Us. You may not need this because they just don't quite have that muscle development yet to really need it. But it's not a bad idea to start getting that routine going and maybe just have a shorter routine for youth or for the younger players. I've done this with 8U, 9U, and we've done just quicker three-minute stretch and a five-minute jog. You could do it with your 11, 12, 13s, 14Us and above. You can definitely do this for a five-minute stretch with about a 10-minute jog. The stretch to me is more important, but the jog doesn't hurt right after. Again, it's just to get the body circulating out. And that's mostly because baseball is an anaerobic. It's not an aerobic type of sport. There's not this consistent heart rate blood flow going in baseball. Players could literally play double headers and get their heart rate above 100 only a few times, maybe a half dozen times to 10 times the entire time out there. Now, some players are going to be hustling more and they're going to be on base more and they're going to be sprinting around and maybe the pitcher is giving up a lot of hits to the gap and your outfielders are running all the time. But baseball is not like basketball. It's not like soccer. So the heart rate, the blood flow can be much less or typically is much less. And so if you have a lot of stagnation, a lot of standing around, 
around, especially after the pitcher pitches. I don't think it's a bad idea to get a little blood flow going. Again, it's not used to build cardio, but just a little bit after 10 minutes is fine. Five minutes, even just if you did a five minute stretch and a five minute jog, I think can be very advantageous. Just getting the blood flowing a little bit after an extended outing if the pitcher, or I should say, especially if the pitcher had a long outing, that's not a bad idea, but definitely want to get that stretch in. Definitely want to get a good stretch in, stretching the arm out. Five to eight minutes is ideal. Now you might go, Coach Bo, if it's really great to stretch, why don't you have them stretch for 15 minutes or 20 minutes? Well, the reason that I don't, I didn't stick with that as a coach is it just really extended out the day, the game, the practice. It just really extended things out. If I couldn't build it into the middle of practice or into practice or into the game, if I couldn't do it during practice or during the game and I had to do it after with the staff or the pitchers that pitched, it really can extend it out. And you got to be careful how long you extend it for and things like that. I just, it was more of, I wanted the pitchers to be focused on the stretching and take it serious. And so I said, hey, give me five minutes and give it to me good. Give me a good stretch, really good breathing, working on it, working on elongating the muscles, really stretching out the lats, moving it around as they're holding that stretch, just moving and kind of moving their body to really get a good mobility, flexibility component added to their post-game or post-practice pitching routine. Icing and things like that, again, that's gone back and forth. Pitching, I used to ice my arm all the time. In fact, I had like a lot of you, you remember using or you've seen those ice things that would strap on. I guess the science is always kind of going back and forth with the icing. And I definitely think the icing can be advantageous for an acute injury. Say a kid rolls his ankle, not that like six-year-olds roll their ankle, but you got a 12 or a 14 year, especially like the high school level or above, they roll an ankle. If you can get ice on it right away on a severe ankle sprain, you can really help the swelling or any type of injury where there's an acute kid gets hit by a pitch in an area that's going to swell up. If you can get ice on it right away, that can definitely help the swelling. I'm no doctor, so I'm not going to get into it too much, but I definitely think ice for acute injuries can be very advantageous. Pitching is not necessarily, in most cases, pitching is not an acute injury, right? If it's an acute injury, you got much bigger problems. You're going to be going to the doctor anyway, and maybe even surgery and things like that, which typically don't affect youth baseball players. I'm not saying they don't, but they typically don't affect that level, especially like the 12 and under, 11 and under. Icing, I'm not against it, but I don't know how advantageous it is. I definitely big on preemptive care, getting the arm stronger, making sure you don't overuse pitchers, making sure their legs are extremely strong, their delivery is efficient and effective. And I definitely think having that mobility and flexibility, especially as they get a little older, and that to me is best done after they throw, not before they throw. In fact, I don't really think pitchers should do a whole lot of stretching. Players shouldn't do a whole lot of stretching before. They should definitely do some gradual warm-ups. They should definitely do a gradual dynamic warm-up where you might start at, say, 20 or 30, 40% build up from there. But the old static stretch, I do like a static stretch. I just think the static stretch needs to be done definitely after the game. And you could use this same strategy with other positions, such as catchers. Definitely could use it with catchers on their hips. That would be big for catchers that do a lot of stretching with their hips. Same with pitchers, really working the shoulders, really getting a good shoulder stretch in after they pitch. If the player is planning on or you are planning on keeping the player in the game, the pitcher that comes out, if you plan on keeping them in the game, don't stretch them, hold off. If that's it for the player and they can get in a stretch right then, have a routine, have a standardized routine for this. Typically, four stretches for a minute and a half really works well or five stretches for a minute. That really works well. It gets them to hold and really get into a good long stretch, elongated static stretch. I think there's some great YouTube videos on stretching out there, but definitely 
use it after pitching, I think is a good idea for the most part. Is this make or break? Not necessarily. As pitchers get older, yeah, this can be a big deal. This could be big, especially once they start getting that good muscle growth in the upper body, their shoulders start getting stronger. They start getting stronger arms, bigger muscles. Definitely advantageous. Youth baseball, it might be good just to get in a quick routine, a three-minute routine with a little bit of a jog or just stretch them for you know three to five minutes for those eight years, nine years, 10 years after the game to get that programmed into them that this is part of pitching. So when they get to 13, 14 or older, they're not like, wait, what? I didn't do this when I was younger. All right, let's get into the hitting plan, the hitting approach, some things I've been seeing. And I got two red flags for coaches that will tell you or that tells us as coaches, our hitters do not have a good plan. If this is a one-off incident, I wouldn't worry about it. But if you see a pattern of this, this is a red flag. These two things that I'm seeing, there's definitely a lot of flaws with the hitting approach, a hitting plan that we can see as coaches. There's definitely more than these two, of course, that tell us that the hitting plan, hitting approach is not dialed in. And is it ever going to be perfect? No, but it's definitely going to look more dialed in when it's more dialed in, right? So with that said, I'm going to jump in and add this. Go over to 8020baseball.com and get the drill design guide. A lot of you have been coming over and getting that. I have it set up finally after all these years. First off, I have the drill design guide 2.0. It's the updated version 2.0. So if you got the original one, this one's going to look a lot better. It's updated, corrected some things, but I've added to it and I've clarified the message because we're always trying to work to clarify it. Just like in your jobs, you're going to be better. You're better now than you were two years ago with your job. You, you know things, you, you know, you've simplified things you've got better, you've worked on some details, you've ironed things out. And that's what I did with this. And it's the Drill Design Guide 2.0. I have the website. You just go over there. I have the website designed now to just send it right to you immediately. Although it doesn't say that it sent you the email. And I got to get that worked out where it tells you, <laughs> I hate when I sign up or I, I want something, I put an email in and then I hit submit and that's it. The screen doesn't really change much. You know, it doesn't look like anything happened. I don't like that. And uh, how I had the website set up originally was like, all right, you know, it says Coach Bo's going to email this to you in the next 24 hours, which I did. But I wanted to make it in case there was times I couldn't. I was at a wedding a couple weeks ago in Puerto Rico. It was like, it was a little hard. You know, I didn't want to let coaches and leave them hanging. But I also was, you know, busy and it was another time. And I, my phone wasn't always connected and working. My computer wasn't always working and things like that. So I was like, you know what? I know when coaches want this, they want it. So I do see everybody's name. And so I, I keep that up and I like to see who's there. And, and kind of going along with that. And I keep up with all of you, but it comes right to you. So I have it set up. So just put your email and your name in there. Boom, it'll send it right over to you. The Drill Design Guide 2.0. It'll take about 20 to 30 minutes to read through it, but it'll definitely give you a crystal clear understanding of the eight steps or the eight parts to a perfect drill or to an optimal drill, designing any type of drill anywhere. On the email that I send to you, it does say to focus on one to two parts at a time. Efficiency is a big one. That's the first one I like to just really focus on getting more quality reps. And then authenticity, that part where it's game-like. So those are the first two parts. I think adding competitions and fun in there comes in. I just wouldn't bite off more than you can chew. That took years and years and years and years for me to, to reverse engineer, to dissect, to analyze all the drills that I ever saw and ever participated in and ever studied and put it into that. And it, it's not something that's just going to be like, oh, I read this in 30 minutes, this drill design guide, the 80-20 drill design guide. And now I can just go out to the field. No problem. I can design a drill. 
boom, you will definitely see results right away. You will definitely be able to design drills a lot better right away, or you'll definitely see flaws in your drills that you have now, and you'll start to look for ways to continually get better with each drill. In fact, I've never stopped looking at ways to get better with the drills that I do. I'm always finding little nuances, little ways to get better. Now, caveat to that, I don't like overhauling a lot of things during the season. I'm not a big fan of big overhauls during the season unless I feel it's very urgent. I don't like the message it sends the players and it also can set you back in terms of efficiency and things like that. Do you need to do it from time to time? Yes. I just don't like big overhauls, but I'm a huge fan of adding little, adding nuances, adding adjustments. Not only that, it keeps it fresh, but it doesn't change the underlying premise of the drill and the goal of the drill and also the the infrastructure and the, the foundation, I should say, like the blueprint of the drill stays the same. So players don't need to get the full set of instructions every time or the next, you know, two or three times that you've overhauled it. They already know how the drill works. So you can just add little changes, little nuances that adjust. You adjust this, adjust that a little bit. So kids can just keep going full speed with that drill and they can add in or you can add in little adjustments to keep it fresh. And also at the end of the day to make the drill better and better. So it's a continual growth thing. And I'm going to make all of you youth baseball coaches feel real good right now. I'm being serious right now. hundred percent, always hundred percent with all of you. I know we got college coaches and some pro coaches and definitely high school coaches listening to this. I know it's a youth baseball center, but the stuff we talk about works at every level flat out. It does. Here's the thing, youth coaches. I've never seen a college and a high level high school or a college or professional drill perfect. I've never seen a drill better than 80% to where it could be in terms of quality reps, authenticity, competition, fun, just in the whole thing. So youth coaches, your drills aren't going to be perfect. I used to go to division one baseball practices, professional, you know, spring training. And I'll tell you what, I would just see drill after drill that was massively underserving the players. And I know like in spring training, it's a little more laid back. So it's not about, but at the end of the day, a good drill is a good drill. And I've never seen a perfect optimal drill at any level. Now there may be optimal drills being run out there. Hopefully there are. I haven't seen them. I hope there are. There probably is somewhere. If I see just an optimal, an optimally run drill, just, I mean, that would just fire me up. Nothing gets me more fired up than better drill training drills because kids are having fun. Kids are getting quality reps. And you know, at the end of the day, the production, the result that it's going to yield come game time is going to be there. I just like to see well thought out constructed drills. I remember years ago reading Ed Chef and the Collegian Baseball newspaper. He would talk about drills that he was doing. And I was like, wow, this guy's so far ahead of everybody in terms of every little detail. He was trying to make it more authentic. He'd make it more game-like. I mean, he didn't even do his batting practices with the coaches throwing batting practice if he could. He'd bring in ex-players, alumni that lived in the area. This was Lewiston, Idaho. He would have guys come in and Coach Chef, he just recently passed away. Rest in peace, Coach Chef. He is one of the the greatest all-time coaches of all time. We need more coaches like Coach Chef in the game right now and at all levels. Just really cared about it. He was there for the kids and he was, you know, instilled discipline in each of his teams. It was very, it was toughness, mental toughness. And he would have in his, like his batting practice, he would get alumni pitchers. He would have them come out. The guys that could still throw pretty good. A lot of these guys that are done playing can still bring it at that level and still can compete at that level. And he'd have them come out and throw batting practice. So his players 
were seeing some 88, 89, 90 mile an hour, left-handed, right-handed. They were seeing some good stuff. And that's just a one I one small example of what he would do. But tell you what, I just want you guys all feel better that there is no perfect drill that I've seen out there. So you're not going to have perfect drills, but you get that drill design guide. You're going to have a much better understanding of where to start, what to do, and what it should look like because you can see the steps, the parts that it needs. All right, let's wrap it up with this hitting approach. Okay, two red flags. If your hitters are not swinging at pitches with less than two strikes in their hitting zone, in their hitting zone, not necessarily the strike zone because the strike zone can be pretty big and at the youth level can be extra big. And so expecting hitters to cover the entire strike zone with less than two strikes is not a good idea. It's not a good idea. First off, it's just a lot of square inches to cover. And if you don't need to cover it with less than two strikes, don't cover it because you with less than two strikes inherently, you can still be up there even if the pitcher throws a good pitch on the outside corner or a couple inches off the plate at the knees, take the pitch, move to the next one. But a big red flag that I'm seeing a lot of major league players have that I know youth baseball players struggle with too, a red flag as a coach, if your players are consistently or routinely taking pitches in their hitting zone with less than two strikes, this tells me they might be guessing. This tells me they're looking in a different area. They're trying to cover the entire zone. They're not ready. Their timing's off. Whatever it is, they have their pre-at-bat routine is not dialed in. There's something wrong and you need to diagnose that. So I can't speak to each player as you, you're going to see that. But if they're taking consistently, you know, when I say consistently, like more than two, two or more pitches in their hitting zone with less than two strikes. And we, you should know what hit, your hitting zones are for your hitters. Your hitters should know what their hitting zones are. And I think naturally, most hitters know where they like pitches, right? They kind of know where, or at least they know what they can, where they can do damage hitters have a hitting zone based off of the pitches they produce the most hits, the most power, the most line drives, the most balls to the gap, the pitches that they consistently drive and hit hard. That's their hitting zone. Most hitting zones are similar, although they do vary a little bit. Sometimes up is better for some hitters. Sometimes down is better for some hitters. Sometimes a little away is better for some hitters and in. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be too far from the middle of the zone, in that strike zone area, etc. So hitters should not be consistently taking. If they take more than one pitch in their hitting zone a game, that to me is a red flag with less than two strikes. Now with two strikes, hitters, this is a big one I'm seeing these days at the major league level. And this is one you're going to see. I see it at the youth level at all levels. And this is something that you can see when you're watching your favorite major league team play. Big swings, big swings on pitches with two strikes that are fringe pitches, that are pitchers pitches. Now it's two strikes. So hitters do need to swing at pitches on the fringe of the strike zone. They do need to swing. You can't leave it up to the umpires. But taking a big, powerful, aggressive swing on a pitch that's an inch off the plate or down, down just below the strike zone, maybe an inch, but you don't want to take it. The hitter shouldn't take it and leave it up to the umpire. Those close pitches, those fringe pitches, those pitches outside of their less than two strike hitting approach, when there's two strikes, they should not be taking massive rips at it. Unless they know what pitch is coming and exactly where it's going to be. And hitters with two strikes should not be taking massively aggressive swings at pitches that are on the fringes. They might try to just battle it off. They might try to just put it in, and not necessarily put it in play just to put it, but yeah, put it in play or, you know, try to just go with the pitch the other way a little bit or or fight it off, foul it off. They should not be taking massively aggressive swings on pitches that are fringe pitches or just high quality pitchers pitches. If they're doing that, that tells me that they haven't adjusted their swing with 
less than two with sorry with two strikes and a swing with two strikes should be as aggressive as it can be as dictated by the pitch if it's a meatball fastball right down the middle and that does happen a lot with two strikes i know that's not talked about a lot but it does happen a lot pitchers miss they leave a meatball they hang a little weak off speed or a change up up those pitches should be swung at pretty aggressively those pitches should be put good hard swings on but those pitches are high 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 percentage contact pitches areas but when you get those pitches on the fringe of the strike zone fringe areas pitchers pitches they make a good they dot that outside corner at the knees hitters should not be taking big old rips at it they shouldn't be taking massive swings on curveballs that they're out in front of first off they shouldn't be out in front taking massive swings they're out in front they should have that two striker approach where they can just keep their hands back just long enough and foul it off fight it off or hey maybe drop something in behind the infielders all right get fired up with all of you i just love it when i see the numbers flying up uh, on the podcast listeners i love it i love to have this and because of that all of you and the emails i get I'll tell you what, it fires me up and I want to keep bringing it for all of you. Speaking of keeping it going, we'll keep it going here next week, next Tuesday, when the next episode comes out, our weekly get together here. Love being here with all of you. Send me your email questions. If you got them, go over and get that drill design guide, 8020baseball.com. There's a dozen articles over there. There's a dozen coaching videos over there. You could spend hours over there just getting your coaching game up. Go over there, take care of that, do that. Follow me on Twitter, 8020 underscore baseball, 8020 underscore baseball on Twitter. I don't put out a ton of stuff. I retweet. I put out a few things a week. I retweet things. I do take videos that I find from MLB that are applicable to youth baseball and I show those. So there's a visual there. You can follow me on Facebook, 8020 baseball. I've been just kind of posting similar stuff on there. I'm going to be adding more to that. Not a big social media person. In fact, I don't do social media unless it's for baseball. Not knocking it. I think it's good for a lot of reasons, but I just don't get on there as much as I probably should. But if you follow me on Twitter, I get on there a couple times a day. I try to retweet good things. I try to share good things. And I try to put video on there of things that I see, I find on YouTube or just when I'm watching a game on TV, I'll snap it and put it on there and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. This is what we can learn from that. With that said, I look forward to being back here next week. You know what I'm going to say right now. You know what I'm going to say. Take care of your health. Take care of your health so you can take care of your families. You can take care of your friends, your close friends, your inner circle, and you can go out there with good health to take care of your baseball team and take this information along with that energy and go out there, make the baseball community a better place, put this stuff into action, put it out there, test it, try it, just keep going and put it out there and just keep perfecting it, getting better every time. This here is trying to give you a higher level of confidence when you go out there. No coach is perfect, not even at the highest levels. Don't try to be perfect. Just know when you go out there using this stuff, you're going to be using stuff that works. It's proven to have worked and it's going to give you a clear, concise plan as to what you should do when you're out there. And then from there, there's going to be complexities and trial and errors and things with each player and things like that. It's always going to be a learning curve, but at least you have a clear-cut path to being a successful coach, and that's why you're here. And that's always a great feeling, going out there confident, knowing that what you know is going to work. It's just a matter of implementing it and getting it rolling. All right, you awesome coaches. I'll see you here next week. Adios. This has been the 8020 Baseball Masterclass. Take it to the field. 